Hey everyone, welcome to This is Steph Sober, a weekly podcast for those in need of some sober support. I'm your host, Steph, and in today's episode, I have Ashley from the Sober Girl podcast joining us to share her story. Ashley's sober date isn't like most. You see, her sober date is also the day she went to jail after her third DUI. So you could understand why she may have a hard time when that date comes up on the calendar. Ashley's story is unlike any I have had on the show so far. She got sober in an environment that was not ideal. There was zero support and she was forced to forge her own path. It takes a lot of strength to do what she did, but that isn't why she shares her story. She shares her story so that others don't face the same reality as her because she believes nobody should take on sobriety alone and she never leaves a DM on red. She is an example of why I love the sober community because she doesn't judge and she's open to helping anyone who reaches out. This is Ashley Sober. Hello, Ashley. Welcome to my podcast. I've been looking forward to this since way before, you know, the holiday season. We've been kind of chatting. And so this day has been a long time coming. And this is the first day I'm like back to my normal schedule. So it's like, I feel like... We made it <laughs> grounded. <laughs> yes. Getting there, getting there. I mean, like I've got my space back, my daughter's back to school and I feel like I'm like getting back to just normalcy. I mean, I don't know about you, but like routine is huge for me. Yes. I believe personally that routine and sobriety is absolutely 100%. Oh. 100%. Mm-hmm. When I fall yeah. off my routine, I'm a mess. <laughs> I am a disaster. My husband's like, well, what's going on? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it's, it definitely does something for me mentally as well. And I feel like when I was a drinker routine was really hard to stick to because, you know, hangovers and anxiety and all that can really throw you off track with that. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Let's just start like this is how I like to start is like a little backstory. Um, Maybe tell me a little bit about growing up and if alcohol, what kind of role alcohol maybe played for you as a child and growing up? Sure. So I'm one of five siblings. I'm the oldest. My parents got divorced when I was 10. My youngest brother was one. So I have four siblings. They're all boys. And it was not an easy childhood. It was traumatic for every single one of us. So, but in different ways, because we were at different stages with my parents. So basically, like I helped my dad the most. I basically at 10 had to transition basically into an adult. Like I had to be his helper. I had to like help with the kids and help with so many things. And I've forgotten a lot. But one thing I always remembered was I literally never, ever saw my dad drink ever, ever. And my grandfather drank like Bush, which we always joked was like not even beer. (laughs) So, so, and my dad was extremely strict with me. 
like instilling in me to like not smoke, not drink, not do drugs. If he even thought like I was off with somebody doing drugs, he literally would drive and get me and bring me home. Like I probably had it the worst out of the five of us because I was only girl. So he was super strict with me. And I feel like that's kind of how I am extremely in my life as well. Like I'm just very like strict orientated. And like, I really try to make the right decisions, which leads me to very indecisive decisions. So my childhood was definitely traumatic, even though I don't remember a ton of it. It's I remember like bits and pieces and it's, I believe that's why I became an alcoholic 100%. So because as a child, you know, you're supposed to be nurtured and you're supposed to learn how to express your feelings. Well, like for me, my dad was the one crying in the corner. Like, what was I supposed to do? Like, I couldn't be the one crying in the corner. I couldn't cry about something stupid that my brothers did to me because he literally was a disaster. Like, you know, so I had to just kind of pick up the pieces. And that left me with absolutely zero coping skills. I don't know how to feel emotions normally. Um, It drives my husband insane. (laughs) And like, I just, that's where I feel like it started. So alcohol really didn't play a role. My mom drank a glass or two of wine a night. My grandma, same thing. Um, My dad never drank in front of me that I can remember. And he was also like super aware of if we were doing those things because he had an addiction problem. So my mom said that when I was like a baby, he got a DUI and he wasn't driving. Like he drove a bicycle to work. They moved super close to his job so he could drive a bicycle. And that after that, he never drank again. My brothers tell a different story and I don't know like who's right because I don't ever remember seeing that. And I feel like I would remember that. I feel like that would be like a pivotal thing that I would remember. But I know that I did not drink until I was 25. Like at all. Wow. Like I didn't drink anything because I was so scared because my on my maternal side, my uncle was an alcoholic, like a bad alcoholic. And then I knew my dad had that. So I was just super careful. Until I wasn't. <laughs> so you said, you know, he was very strict about it. So was there a lot of conversations around like, don't drink. This is what could happen. Is that what you're saying? There was a lot of that type of stuff or semi, I wouldn't say like a healthy conversation. Okay. I would, you know, he would just be really against everything. Like I remember like this time where I went like to the side of the house and like stole one of his cigarettes and was like wanting to see what it was like. He knew he came running down the freaking stairs like and he was a loud, angry guy. Like he never that I can remember ever did anything to us, but he was a loud guy. Like I'm loud. He was five times louder than I am. And he just he was very angry for a long time until he eventually met somebody that like helped him with that. So he was just really loud. So even when he would like speak, it would scare you sometimes because he's like loud and animated. So it was it was really difficult because I felt like if I did something, I would get caught like one and I would be worse. Like he would always Mm. take away the things like he wouldn't be like, oh, go to your room. He would be like, "Okay, you know, like music, like you love music. That thing's on a rolling cart. I'm taking it and locking it in my room like you will not have anything. He would unplug the phone from the wall. Like, it would be, like, like old school. Like, something out of, like, the 60s because that's how he was raised. Sure. So, like, in generational parenting, I don't feel like a lot of that shifted for him until it got to, like, my last couple brothers in the house. And it just wasn't a situation where you could kind of go to him and be like, hey, what happened? I had to do that when I was an adult. 
mm-hmm. which was hard because mm-hmm. at that time I was in like the midst of my addiction and his advice was like, Oh, go to rehab or go to here or go there. And like, it, like I wanted to talk to him about it. Like, what was your addiction? Like, like, how did this affect you? And he really didn't come to me with that for a long time. Did he ever talk to you about how he recovered, went through recovery himself? No, no. And he said, we went to dinner last time he came to Connecticut. We went to dinner and I remember him saying, he goes, yeah, like a couple months ago, I tried to have um, like a, you know, a non-alcoholic beer, which was like not the thing in the time frame when he was telling me this. And he was like, I don't know. It just like wasn't for me. But then I found out when he passed away that he was literally drinking beer. And I'm like, what? Like it, like it shattered me because I'm like, I can't even ask anybody, like, why is he drinking? Like he wasn't mm-hmm. drinking before. And I guess he would have like one and it would be fine. And I have heard stories from a lot of older people that they do eventually when they do deal with whatever it was that brought them to that space that they can just have one and it's fine. And some people can't, but I think that's like a really slippery slope. It is. So yeah, I agree. It really bothered me because even at his memorial that I threw here, like his friends were talking about like what he would do. And it was insane. Like he would like drive a car with no license, which I did. Like literally everything I did, like he did. Like, and I'm like, you could have prevented all this by like literally talking to me about it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't blame anybody but myself, but I feel like part of it is genetic and part of it isn't. Part of it is circumstantial and situational. And I think it's like, part of it is you only know what you know. You only know what you were raised around and it's unraveling those things and figuring out that like, those beliefs don't have to be part of you anymore. You can do things differently. You can switch the narrative. You can break that generation curse or whatever you want to call it and be awake to it. And I think that's huge. And it it sounds to me like what you're telling me, like that's the road that you have decided to go down instead of like, this is who I am because that's what those were the, you know, that's the cards I was dealt. My dad was that way. So I'm going to be that way. I mean, people get stuck in that and just sit in it. Yeah. And then, so I have, so the reason I think that the, in the DNA is there's five of us. Mm -hmm. So all five of us drink, all five of us are alcoholics. Only two of us are. So statistically, like, I mean, that's two out of five people. Right. Mm -hmm. So but there's different situations like both of us have different situations around not being able to cope and so it's hard because like I took this path this different path right and I'm like you know what I just don't want to live like this anymore like this is where I'm at and then obviously my brother took a different path so it's and then two of my brothers three of my brothers drink very responsibly don't do anything bad don't drive when they're drinking like very you know, just normal. Yeah. Normal. What we call normal drinkers. Yeah. 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 So you said you started drinking then when you were 25. Yeah. Like, so I was, so I got married really young. So I was 22, 23 when I got married. So super young. My ex-husband had four kids. So he like drank occasionally when he would go out to dinner and like, I would have like a sip here and there, but like, I just didn't want to be around it because I knew my dad was an alcoholic. I knew my uncle was an alcoholic and I didn't 
I just didn't want to have to deal with a problem. Like, I was like, I just don't want to have to deal with this. And I don't really think at that time, like, I had done no healing work. I'd never been in therapy. I just had a bunch of my coping was, I'm just not going to talk about it because that's what I did when I was a kid. So when I went through my divorce, I started to drink and I worked at a restaurant. I was a restaurant manager. So I would like go out and we would have a couple drinks really responsibly go home. And then that just ended up snowballing over time. And really, I think it was, I was like running away from just dealing with my divorce and then my parents' divorce, like both of them together. Mm. And it was really difficult because at the time, like I had no idea, like, Hey, Ashley, go to therapy, like, and then you'll be fine. Like, this will be great. And at the time, it that's just not how it worked out. So it was slow. It was a very slow progression. And then it was just like speed of light, like one thing after another, after another. All right. So let's talk about the one thing after another, after another. Sure. Um, okay. So 25, it started. When did, like, around what age would you say it started to become problematic? Because for a lot of us, yes, it's like, it's like the slow progression, right? Where you think you've got control until one day it's like, no, no longer under your control at all. Um, I would say 27. And it's kind of hard. So I got, my first DUI was not an addiction. So that's like kind of crazy. Mm. And it's a weird thing for me to deal with because it was at a time where I didn't, I wasn't drinking like I had, like, let's go in the future. So I had lived like 30 minutes from where I was working. The bartender made me drinks. They were really strong. I had one drink, drove home and got a DUI like wasn't drunk wasn't knew what was happening like you know bad and then after that it just like spiraled because like everything started going wrong after that and then it just got and then that's where it just took off from that moment like from that moment it just like really took off and then for a while i maintained a lot of things like i still held a job and then for a couple years and then it just caught up to me what did your what did your drinking look like i mean i so i classify myself as a binge drinker where Mm -hmm. i didn't need to drink every day um but when i drank like that's what we're doing like we're getting blackout drunk and i would do that yeah okay that was me 100 percent yep i didn't drink every day i didn't drink in the morning um never was like that um i just would binge like if i drank i wouldn't stop Mm -hmm. and it would always be like i wouldn't say every time the situation was like an emotional situation for me but it just and then i made like really stupid decisions and that it was just stupid it's not like i was like drinking at home by myself it was very social for me so and then it became less social because you know i was like just the place I was in there was just no I just started drinking at home because I was like okay well like I'm gonna get wasted I'm gonna black out I might as well do it at home like at least I know I'm here I'm safe nothing's gonna happen you know and then during that time I mean I got two more DUIs and then after my third one that was my last one so um and it was just 
like a crazy situation because if I just did the things I was supposed to do when I got my first one, I don't know if I would have gotten a second one. I don't know if I would have became an alcoholic like that, you know? So in my story, there's like a lot of, if I didn't do this, would I have done this or would I have, would this have looked different because I never reinstated my license. I drove for almost four years without a license, literally kept driving, like didn't care. Like I was just in like this space where I was depressed. I was anxious all the time and just trying to numb everything that I possibly could feel. I didn't want to be in a relationship with anybody. I wasn't over my ex-husband, like so many things. I just wasn't dealing with the world and the world just kept like passing me by. And then, I mean, it all caught up to me. Like it, it was inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how has it been? Okay. So there's just, there was a lot to unpack right there. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just here like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Three DUIs. And like you said, okay, if I would have learned from the first one with the second and the third and then driving. So there's something the other day that I was thinking about because I actually have a friend that, um, got two DUIs within like two months and, um, was on house arrest. Mm-hmm. And during this house arrest, like can't, couldn't drink either. And I was kind of excited because I felt like, oh, you know, taking a break might be good for this person. Like maybe they'll see that, you know, they have a little bit of a problem. And But the pain point isn't there f- for this person. And so I'm, I'm kind of telling you this to see if this has anything to do with your story. But the pain point wasn't there for this person they quit drinking because they were forced to legally forced to like mm-hmm. ankle mm-hmm. bracelet detecting alcohol in their system. Like, and there, that there is something to that. Like you can't people quit because it's hurting them. Right. Like I quit because it was like, I finally got to the point where it was actually hurting me, even though other people like my daughter and things like that were, were, you know, in the crossfires, it wasn't until it was hurting me. And I think that's probably why it took three DUIs. <laughs> Cause I can and imagine were- the legal issues themselves oh. and the money and the inconvenience. Yeah, it was insane. And they were all very far apart. So they weren't even together. So they were within an, a three year period. So it was, it was crazy because I got the first one in 2015 and then I got the second one in 2016 and then got the other one in 2018. And that was my last one. And that's the last time I drove. So it's funny because, and I don't recommend that for anybody because you end up making your situation a million times worse. Like the things I've had to go through to get my license back are insane. And I wouldn't want anyone to go through what I had to go through. And I, when I started going through it, I started documenting it because on TikTok, because I was like, I don't want anyone else to have to go like to not know what to do. Like the DMV was not even helpful. Like they just were moving me in all these different directions. So that in itself was like having to deal with almost like dealing with my addiction all over again, like treating you like a criminal. Yeah. 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 So it was really difficult because it's like these bad decisions I made, but I have a friend who literally went through everything your friend went through. She still was an active addiction for years until after Mm -hmm. that. So she, so that situation, like it's maybe it will, maybe it won't, you know, because like the first time 
I didn't have, I don't feel like at that time I had a problem. So when I got the second one, 100% yes, 100% yes. So if I just reinstated my license, had the breathalyzer put in my car, I wouldn't be able to drink and did that. I like, I wonder, like, it's just a thing. I don't regret. It's hard. I don't believe in regret because I feel like every decision you make leads to another decision. I literally, if I was, if I had never been in an addiction, I would have never met my husband. And I think he is 100% the person for me. So that's tough because it's like, okay, well, if I did stop, would I have met Matt? Like, would we have crossed paths? Like, no, because in my addiction, I met the friend that set us up. So it's like those things, I don't like regretting things. I never hurt anybody else. Thank God. I never hurt myself. Mm -hmm. Thank God. But like, it's just, it spirals out of control. And the DMV makes everything so difficult that I think people are like, well, I'm going to try to see if I can get away with this as long as I can, because this is like, I don't want to deal with this. Like I know somebody, I don't know them personally, but my friend had told me a story about how person had the same thing, 3D eyes like me, whatever. And the process to get your license back was so expensive and so much work that he literally chooses to drive without a license. Like he literally won't go through the process. And it is a very hard process to deal with, especially when you're not a normal person. Like I process things very differently. I feel things very differently. There's all these things that go into account and it kind of prolonged my license situation because like I literally couldn't deal with certain things like I needed time so it's hard and then in the middle of this I'm doing my podcast and then I was like I just can't even do this right now because I was so mad at my addiction like I literally had to work through that like I could not do anything that had to do with sobriety and I just stopped because I was like I can't I'm just mad I'm mad at myself I'm mad at the position I put myself in and you know and it's not like it just affected me like my husband has to bring me places. My in-laws have to bring my in-laws are 76 years old and sometimes have to come and pick me up from work. Like my nephew who's 19 has to pick me up from work. Like it's these little things that like kind of add up in the mix of the situation. So when I did this to myself, like I didn't only do this to myself, but I did this to future people that are in my life as well. So, and that's a hard pill to swallow. You know, that's a hard thing to go through it's a hard thing to go through when you've dealt with addiction you're on this other side and then all of a sudden you're like in the middle of your addiction again and then how do you navigate that like how how do you do that so it's it's a lot of constant healing constant work constant reading constant just growing because situations happen all the time like flashback me and then you have to figure out what's going on and I think all of these situations are why I don't really crave alcohol. Why I don't think about it because the second I think about it, I imagine myself in a car accident. I imagine myself in a jail cell. I imagine myself in so many different places that it, I, like I won't ever go back there. So I would never have one sip of alcohol again because I don't know where that would lead me. So it's I'm in a like a different mindset, I think, than most people because of all the stuff I've gone through. Mm-hmm. There hard lessons learned, right? Like that's the sum of it right there. Like they were necessary lessons Mm -hmm. and they're great things for when you play Like what you're saying is playing it forward. If you have a sip, like you've are, you've, you've been there, like the worst scenarios. And then, and then you can imagine from there, like people are like, how can it get worse? Well, yeah, it could get worse. I could have hurt someone. I could have gotten an accident and, and killed someone or myself or 
you start playing those things out and yeah, it's because hard lessons learned there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So third DUI, when did the sobriety happen right away or was there a process Mm. to that? Nope. It happened a couple months later. I was, I do mandatory four months of jail. So, um, mm -hmm, yeah. So that's a big chunk of my story. So I had to, which I knew I had like talked to lawyers, like done my due diligence and, uh, they had basically told me what happened. I was like, you know, what are my chances? Like at that point I knew that like, I couldn't keep going. And I was like, well, what if I go to rehab? What will happen? They're like, literally nothing will stop you from going to jail. They're like, don't even go to rehab. Like, it's not even worth it. It's not with your time, not with your money. And it's funny because I called rehab and they literally told me I was too sober to be there. And I was like, "Hmm, I'm a raging alcoholic. So that makes sense. But okay. So I was like, okay, so like, what do I do? And this was in a time where like, there wasn't what there is now. There was no sober communities. There was nobody talking out about it. Like that wasn't a thing. So I continued to drink though. Like I continued to not like bad, but I like I did. Cause I was like, well, like I knew once I went to jail, like I knew when I was going to jail, the, they worked with me really well. I was able to like put everything in order for the months that I was gone. I was able, I had three months. They gave me three months to do what I had to do. So I was very fortunate for that. And then I went to jail. I turned myself in at like the court or whatever. And that is my sober date. So while most people's sober dates are really happy for them, mine is not as much because that Terrifying. is also the anniversary of when I went to jail. So it's, that's been a lot to deal with. Now I'm okay with it. But in the beginning it was not, it was hard. Like I celebrated my birthday in jail. I like, I didn't have a really crazy, horrible experience. A lot of people think like, oh my God, you had such a horrible experience that that's what got you sober. No, I went in knowing that I didn't fix myself and figure out why I would never stop. And I would lose literally every single person I cared about. I would lose all my siblings who were semi like my kids <laughs> and all sure. of my future nieces and nephews. And I would literally just be alone. And I didn't want that for myself. And so when I was in jail, I made the most of my time. I had a job. I had a couple of people that would like I would be able to call and talk to and work through and I read 98 books. So I read books about being sober. I read books about random stuff. I read books that would help me. And I did, I like did things. I got myself into a routine then. I would get up at the same time and I would like make the bed and then I would go to work and then I would come back. And then I would get to these places where I would, this was my reading time. And then I would write. I like, I'm a big writer. So I would just write everything down. And I started really like working through it. Like why? After, like, all the alcohol was out of me and stuff, I was like, why? And then I didn't go through withdrawal because I was a binge drinker. So I didn't drink every day. So I didn't really have anything like that. I didn't go through any kind of withdrawal or anything like that. But I just sat there in my, like, this sober mind going, there's no way I can go back. Like, I'll lose my brothers. I don't want to do that. So it was a lot. And as much as people try to put like this pressure on other people, like, oh, I got sober for my husband or I got sober for my daughter. If you didn't get sober for you, you wouldn't be sober for them. And that's the way I see it. So right. like, although the, that's my why, like if somebody mm-hmm. asked me why, I'm like, that's my why. But it's, I also wanted something different. I wanted to be in a healthy relationship. I wanted to get married again. I wanted to figure out what my future would be. I wanted to like move on with my life from this situation and not have to 
feel the way I felt. Like, I don't want anyone to feel the way I felt. It was horrible. I was like depressed, but anxious. And then I felt lonely. Like it was horrible. So it's a matter of trying to now navigate all that. Like, because you're in this environment where there is no alcohol. Could you get some? Yeah, but there isn't any. Could you do drugs? Sure. But I didn't do that. So, so it didn't even cross my mind. And when I went to my exit interview, I told the lady, she was like, okay, so how long have you been sober? And I like kind of laughed. I was like, what do you mean? The whole time I've been in here, obviously. And she was like, and I was like, I honestly don't even count it. And she was like, well, you should, because most people would find a way. And you didn't even try looking for a way based on your reaction. So, so that like kind of gave me a different outlook. And then it was just a different journey to kind of come out of this environment and then just be around all of these different things and figuring out like, okay, did the work I do in there help me? And it did because I was put in a very dangerous situation as soon as I got out of jail. So I was like, oh, okay. Like a very peer pressure type situation and I didn't drink. So I was like, okay, well, what I did in there had to have worked because I literally, like the person was sitting there telling me that I wasn't fun without alcohol, telling me that why am I being this way? I'm like, I'm an alcoholic. Like, what don't you, like, I cannot drink that. Like, and that person just literally destroyed any boundary that I would have ever set. And I was just like, okay, nope, I'm not putting myself in this situation. And I didn't know that's where it was going to lead the situation. He was just like, oh, you're finally home. Like, let's go get like, dinner here blah 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 and it was just like and he's a drinker so like that's where we went and so and I'm stuck in this situation with no way to get home like I mean I just had to like kind of play along and just not drink but get home you know I was like an hour from home so it was a horrible situation I remember because he took like a picture of me and he had a wine glass so his wine glass was there And one of my friends, a good friend of mine saw the picture and she messaged me and she was like, you can literally be honest with me. If you drank, just let me know because it looked like the glass was in front of me. And I was like, I didn't drink. Like I did not. He begged me to drink. He told me I was boring, told me I was no fun anymore. Literally, that was the last time I ever saw him. I blocked him, blocked him from every outlet. And literally somehow he ended up getting in touch with me through something And I literally blocked him again. Like, and this was years after I was just like, nope, I'm all set. And I was like, I never, ever want to be put in a situation like that again. And, but it also showed me a lot about myself and what I had done. And I had done that stuff for myself because in jail, you could sign up for NAIA, whatever. There's a wait list. So they were able to take me a week before I got out of jail. And I was like, nope, I'm all set. Went to the counselor there expecting like, like, let me like get some therapy. They're like, nope, we don't do that here. I'm like, okay, so you can't help me at all. That's great. So then I just went to the library and just did everything on my own and tried to deal with things on my own and had like people at home look things up for me and like just tried my best to do what I had to do in that environment. And then it was like a whole nother ball game when I came home because I didn't like, there was no, like, I didn't get any kind of training anything I was like what do I do like Mm -hmm. you know and I just kind of continued on the routine that I had had you know I started implementing a gratitude journal and I started writing things down and I started really heavily listening to music and like just I started I found Russell Brand's podcast so I started listening to that I got a job like immediately and I mean my job was a restaurant so I went back into an environment where there was alcohol around me and it didn't bother me and my family didn't want me to do it they're like we're just really scared you're gonna relapse and I was like if it gets that like I'll look for another job but I'm a felon and literally this is the only job I can get so this is it and so 
and I had to deal with it whether I could or not. And I, I could, but so it was just kind of weird. And then I was at that, I, I did the restaurant business for a while and then I eventually just got out of it, not because of the alcohol, but just because I wanted to live like a normal life and mm-hmm. <laughs> have weekends <Yeah>. off and, <laughs> you know, all that. But it, I came home and I, I feel weird because a lot of people want me to talk about like in the beginning of sobriety because I have such like a strong relationship with my sobriety. And it's so difficult because even though I was in this and people say like, oh, well, you were in jail, like you couldn't have done anything anyway. And I'm like, well, I mean, there's like, there's a little bit of a difference there. Like I could have came out and started drinking again. Mm-hmm. Like I was on parole for like 26 days. The guy never came to my house because as soon as he saw me, he was like, why did you yeah. go to jail? Like what? Like so, and he came once so I could sign some paperwork, and then literally I was on probation for a couple years, and then I had to do community service, and then I was done. I was on a non-reporting probation. Like I never had to go see anybody. No one ever called me. Like I mean, I was just kind of here to do everything. I did have to have like an assessment around. Well, I was probably it was six months post jail. And, um, the woman literally wrote on the paper that she would be surprised if I ever drank again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and I didn't, you know, I think most people would just like jump into AA and want to like go through that and get that started. And my family really pressured me to go. So I went to a meeting and then I was like, okay, that's kind of weird, but all right. So then I went to another meeting and I had something happen in the meeting and I was just like, nope. I'm not doing this. I've been doing this by myself ever since. And I just, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I felt like I couldn't relate to anybody. Everyone in the room was like 70 years old. And I was like, "Mm, no. And I had to walk there. So I had to walk an hour to go to the meeting. Oh my God. And then an hour home. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to come to this meeting. And they're like, they just judged because I had never been to AA, but I was six months sober. They were like, wait, we don't understand. There's no way you wake up with no cravings. There's no way that I'm like, but that's my story. Like, this is my story. So I just really never tried to go back. Like, cause I, I was like, I can do this on my own. It's fine. And then I got Russell Brand's book, which because I listened to his podcast, he was like promoting his book at the time. So I was like, oh, all right. And I had a gift card from before I went to jail for like Barnes and Noble. So I went and I got his book that basically detailed out, um, basically the key aspects of any and na what they mean in like literal term like what they mean in like the english language like okay like crazy stuff he swears a lot so there's a lot of swears in it and it's basically all the steps i did all the step work through his book and basically never turned back there's so much strength in what you just said like to come to to work through sobriety like the beginning stages of sobriety which we all know are the hardest because if you for it to stick you have to figure out why you drink you can't white knuckle through it you can't white knuckle through the cravings you have to pinpoint Why am I being triggered? Why am I this way? Why do I drink when I drink? Blah, 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 blah. And then for you to do it in an environment that was just so extremely uncomfortable, I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. you know, no privacy, probably on edge. I mean, this is just what I would picture, just being on edge all the time, having to watch your back, 
don't know who to trust, don't know who you can talk to. It's no wonder when you got out, you were able to stand up for yourself to that friend. And I think, I mean, we don't know, you don't know, but like, there's probably a lot to that because maybe if there wasn't jail involved, it would have been easier for you to say yes to your friend to drink because you know, you weren't strong enough yet. Like, I feel like getting sober in jail really added to your like strength of like, I've got this, like the confidence you need in sobriety to stick to it. One thing that a lot of people don't agree with, but for me, because just because of the way it happened, I did a lot of it in isolation. So it's hard because for me, I was such a social person that I knew my recovery had to be opposite. And now I'm extremely introverted. I hate social situations. I don't like going to places that are super packed. I get major anxiety, like super anxiety, like crazy. Um, And like, I can't go to Walmart, like by myself. Like I'll run out the door. Like I can't, (laughs) it, it sounds so dumb. And like, when I tell people that they literally, like I have a pill that I take when I have to go to Walmart. Like, like that is a rescue non, you know, hurtful medication and, or I just don't go. I choose most of the time just not to go. Um, but recently my husband was sick. I had to go grocery shopping. So he dropped me off and he was like parched to like trying to sleep in the parking lot. And I'm halfway through it. I'm like, I gotta go. I gotta catch. I was shaking. Like my whole body was shaking. I was like, I gotta go. And it's like, that's just something that I think I'm going to have forever. I think that certain things that I can use can like make those situations better. And that doesn't have anything to do with jail. My jail experience wasn't horrible. I never like got close to being in a fight. I'm not a fighter. I was left alone for the most part. I worked a big majority of the day. So I was like out of the room. So I wasn't like in this room for 23 hours a day. Like most of the time I was out like the weekends is when I would like do my bulk reading. And I really just tried to work through my stuff. And so when I came out, I knew that I wanted to like integrate myself very slowly Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to mess up what I had going on. And Mm -hmm. I knew I still needed to have some isolation and a lot of like alone time. And I knew that in my social situations, every time I was alone, I would go and be with other people, even if I didn't know who they were. So it's, it was in order to, I always say in order to fix myself, I had to be by myself because in addiction, it was a total opposite. And I thrive on being alone. I worked really hard in therapy to be alone and to be comfortable with being by myself. And it just, you need to do what you need to do. And if that is integrating people back in your life slowly, there are certain people I refuse to talk to for a very long time. And like, I mean, to the point where if they even found one thing out about me, I would go to the person and be like, look, we already had this conversation. I told you not to repeat anything I say to you. I I do not want them to know anything about me right now. And I need you to respect that. And if you can't, we can't talk. And that person was one of my sister-in-laws that I had to tell that to. And it was hard to have that, like to tell her that, but I had to, mm-hmm. I didn't have a choice. So, and I needed to integrate things slowly because there were certain people who always kind of like, I don't want to say cause problems, but like caused me to get, like always would want to attack me while I was drunk. So, and it happens to be a sister-in-law of mine. And so our relationship from the beginning was just very bad because it was our, every time we spoke, it was bad every from both sides. So it, and with me 
you know, being drunk, I literally, I kept everything in. So when I was drunk, I didn't keep anything in. So I would tell people things that like, I shouldn't have told people and I should have probably just worked through myself. And it created like a horrible dynamic because it, it created a space where now the, both sides of trust are gone. And even though I'm sober, like she never believed I was so for years, like didn't believe it. Um, I know she had told people like, oh, well, Ashley doesn't have a chip. And I remember my mom told me this. My mom was like, yeah, she said that like, you know, you don't have a chip and you don't go to AA and that there's no way you're actually sober. And I looked at my mom. I'm like, I could walk into a meeting, grab a chip, walk to a bar and get plastered. Having a chip literally means nothing right. unless you know you're doing the work. Like nothing. So I was like, and I paid her no mind and until, and it took a while because like we tried to have, like we had a conversation and tried to like kind of have a relationship. And then she was saying things behind my back to somebody that I knew and she was telling me and then I cut it off again. And I was like, nope, I'm not doing this. And then, and that had to happen a couple times. Like it just, and now it's at a decent place. But I mean, for me, I think there's always, in certain relationships I have, there's always going to be a part of me that's very like held back just because like, I don't forget what happened. And I'm sure they don't either. And so it's, there's this, you know, relationship where if my sister-in-law wasn't married to my brother, I would have nothing to do with her. Like sure. we would not have anything to do yeah. with one another. She would tell you the same thing. So it's, you know, it's difficult. And then my nephew, he was the first one that was born. So that nephew really didn't have me present in his life. He didn't really figure out who I was until I was, you know, he was much older. So then I had other nephew, another nephew that was born who I'm extremely close to. So, and that made her basically realize like I fucked up. Like, I shouldn't have done that, even though, like, you were the way you were, like, like, you don't have that relationship with my son. And so now she has a daughter, so she's trying to, like, involve me more and, like, do these things, and I appreciate all those things. And I feel bad that she obviously sees this other relationship, but that relationship is also built because I have a friendship with that sister-in-law. Like, we're friendly, we're friends, there's a certain part of her that understands and she's been there for me since day one since I mm -hmm. came home so there's like just this different respect she was there for me every step of the way so it's a different relationship you know it's, she's just not my sister-in-law she's also my friend and you know she knows some people who are sober too so her understanding of it was a lot more than most so it's in these relationships turn around and they change and they evolve and like certain things happen in them and, you know, I know I have somebody like I go back, like I've been back and forth with a couple times. And then, you know, you have to figure out, like, do you want this relationship? Is it worth the work? What's happening? But you have to make those decisions and feel like what's good. I've stopped talking to people because I, like I just it wasn't worth it to me. They weren't respecting yeah. boundaries. They weren't whatever. And, you know, by setting boundaries, I think it has to be tread lightly because you don't want to have to explain yourself. But you can't be mean about it because if you are, they're not going to respect you. Right. So, so it's, you need to do, and it needs to be like one at a time. Like I did it one person at a time, which is why I integrated myself so slowly. And then, you know, so it's, it's a lot. And I've been in therapy since month six. Like, so a couple months after I got home, I went into therapy and I've been in therapy ever since. In the beginning, it was a lot. It was like two times a week. And now it's every two weeks, sometimes every three. It just depends on yeah what's going on. Like if I have, like, I just had a session yesterday. If I like, you know, in two weeks, kind of like, yeah, I don't really have much to talk about. I'll just message her. She's really awesome. 
um if i'm having like a high anxiety day and i don't want to do therapy i just tell her that and she's like okay when do you want to reschedule for it like she just doesn't she doesn't charge me for it like she's really like the most perfect person but that took time to find you know it's like being in a like finding a relationship with a partner like you need to talk to them and you need to tell them part of your life story and then you need to figure out what's going on and i met a therapist that was like just not in the right direction like nothing was happening I had, I was sick and it was like right after things like first started opening and we were supposed to do a session in person and I had to cancel a session. Like I didn't know if I had COVID, I didn't know what was going on. And she was so rude. And I was like, mm, yep, yeah, no. And I literally sent her a message and I was like, I will not be continuing to see you. Like this is just whatever. So it's, it's really a trial and error. And I think therapy just in general really scares people. Mm-hmm. And then you have, okay, well now I have to find a therapist that fits my needs, that fits what who I am that fits everything and that's hard mm-hmm. you have to you know get this relationship and have this relationship with somebody and you know trust whatever you're telling them like I literally on my first session had to unpack like had to basically be like okay so I was an alcoholic I went to jail this is what happened this is where I live I can't drive this is like in one like in that 15 in an hour period. yeah yeah <laughs> and so you need to like give yourself time I believe everybody should be in therapy. That's just my personal opinion. I think that everybody needs help navigating life and mm-hmm. anything can trigger, like anything can trigger anything for you. Like my husband has like the most perfect parents in the world. Like literally they are amazing, but was in a relationship that was extremely just bad and was single for 16 years because of this relationship. And so when we got together, there was a lot he had to work through and he's not a therapy type person but like I am so I would go just go to my therapist and be like okay this is what's going on like what do I do and how do we navigate this like and she really helped me and it was that helped me like that helped me be able to communicate with him in a way that he needed me to and then like there were things that were triggering him and then that opened his mind up for other things so like for instance if we're it's so, like when something triggers me, I literally lose control. Like I literally cannot control like, and it's towards him because he's like my person. So, and it's always something that have happened between, he's always the one triggering me, unfortunately. <laughs> so he will like say something and it just will like, it'll be, and I'll start freaking out through text and he'll be like, okay. So I had to find a way to fix that. Cause I was like, okay, this isn't working. This isn't healthy. And I saw a video about this guy that said like when these traumatic things happen, anything can really switch them into gear and there needs to be like a safe word. Like you need this word that means, okay, we're just going to take a pause and we're going to come back later. And he used the word bookmarked. And so I showed the video to my husband ever since then. And literally I never have, (laughs) I never bookmark him. So this is literally just for me. And he literally will bookmark me and he'll, we'll be having like something will happen and he'll be like, uh, bookmark. And literally he'll stop responding. He will put his phone down. He won't answer me. Like, and then when he comes home, he'll be like, okay, let's talk because now I'm calm. He's calm. And there's an environment where we can have a conversation. And now that's like crazy. And now we like joke about it because he he'll be like, oh, we haven't had a bookmark in a while. Like, that's pretty good. So it's, you need to find these ways. And yes, people can go into books. Most people won't do that. Um, 
So you have to find other ways. And I do both. I do therapy and then I do books. And then I go to like my therapist to kind of like talk through what's going on with the book and how I can implement that in my everyday life. So I think it's, it's hard, but it's also necessary. Like an AI sponsor is not going to be your therapist. Like they are not (laughs) classified that way. They don't have the training for that. And anybody, even like a friend. So you need to figure out what you need. Like if you can't do it by yourself, then you need to do it in some other way. Mm -hmm. So it's not everybody can do it like that. And I think that some people that do it by themselves feel like, well, like they're so strong because they could do this by themselves. And like, they don't need AA. I have since gone into an AA meeting and still don't like it. So it's just not something that's for me. And it, and I'm, you know, and I have multiple friends who go to AA and they love it. They're still in AA. I know somebody who's been in AA for decades. Mm-hmm. So it's, it just depends on what you need. I think AA can really help in the beginning when you need structure and a foundation. I mm-hmm. think that that's really what, for me, just from what I saw, that's like, I, I mean, that's what I tell people. Like, you need a meeting. Like go to a meeting, you never know what's going to happen. You may be able to meet a sponsor that's really great. And some people have really good luck and go to a meeting and love it and go for years and years. And I think it's, it's a hard step because people correlate like alcoholism with like the homeless guy with the paper bag on the side of the road. And that's not really what it is. That's, that is a part of it, but that's not everybody. Like I was never homeless, you know? So it's, could I have been probably? if I continued, but Mm -hmm. it's, so you, you have to navigate your own situation and figure out what's going on. I will say when you're sober and then you bring in a relationship, it gets very difficult and I'm not even like going to sugarcoat it because it takes a lot of work. My husband and I did a year and a half of work, just work, just straight. And we're both sober. So, so there was already an understanding and we had to do all this work yeah so it's it's really difficult and like even with like you know my friends who are normal you know there's things I won't do there's places I won't go and sometimes I'll go sometimes I won't and that's fine but I never feel like left out really and they don't make me feel left out Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that's you know an important thing too but yeah I mean I don't know I just try to do the best I can Mm -hmm. and then really share what I do because Mm -hmm. I think that maybe that's something one person's missing maybe you know somebody can't deal with something by themselves and being strong isn't oh I can do this by myself it's realizing that I can do this but I need help right like and that's that strength is knowing that like I couldn't do it by myself you know how many times I tried to stop drinking like I couldn't do it by myself like I had to like you said you have to get that reason and when people tell me they don't have a reason, I was like, you need one. Yeah. So you need to, you need to dig in and figure out what your reason is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there is like no reason, you know, there that doesn't exist. So, and, and there's, I mean, so when I started in the recovery community, it was much different than it is now. I think a lot more people are there. A lot more people are just saying whatever they want to say because they can on social media. And I think that also needs to be navigated because there's good and bad people. You don't Mm -hmm. have to follow everybody in sobriety. It's okay. You can pick and choose and you can feel who you have connections with. And, you know, for me personally, like I answer every single DM I get, 
like no matter what it is, because it could be somebody that Mm -hmm. maybe needs a tip about something. So, and I always urge people to reach out to anybody. Like if you feel like you have similarities, message them. Yes. Like what's the worst thing that can happen is they don't message you back. Okay. Then you know what? You find somebody else to talk to. There's a bunch more out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, although my story is like quite insane, it's uh, like, not that I can joke about it. Like I do kind of joke about it, but I'm literally in the, like, I have my license test next week. So I've like, I'm almost out of it, you know? And that took a while. I took my permit test in August and failed and then didn't take it again until the 29th of December because I literally was so in my head and my anxiety and then like just the flashbacks and everything was going on. And finally my husband looked at me and he's like, you're making your test for this week, not taking no for an answer. And we're going to go. And if you fail, we'll go back. Yeah. And so I studied my ass off and obviously passed the test. So it's, it's like, it's all you need to take it in strides, but you, there's always somebody there that can help you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the one thing I wanted. I'm trying to be the person that I needed that I didn't have. And that's just why I do what I do. Yeah. Me too. 100%. I was that person who, oh, I'm strong. And I'm going to do this by myself. And I, I did for 99 days on my 99th day is when I started my sober Instagram account. And that's when everything changed for me, like everything, the feeling of loneliness, the feelings of like, I, I don't know if I can do this. Like, am I, am I, you know, am I exaggerating? Like, was it really that bad? Because I was still around everybody and everything that triggered my drinking. And I didn't understand that there was a whole world. I thought AA was it. And I was as an introvert, I'm like, I can't do it. Like I can't bring myself to walk in a meeting and, and like have all these people. I don't like when people have to stand up and talk. Like I even get like secondhand anxiety for other people who have to like stand up and talk. Like it's a thing for me. And so to find the sober community on Instagram was huge for me. And it is why I do what I do. It's why I started my podcast because I feel I'm not alone in that. I feel there's a lot of people who get lost because they think they got to try to do it by themselves. They're scared to ask for help. And therapy's huge too. I I've got an amazing therapist and I agree with you 100%. Like you have to shop around. It's like they need like a dating app for therapists. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know because I've been, I've done therapy before I got sober. And it just really like you said, it was just not we weren't vibing and Yeah. The therapist I have now is like a dream come true. I'm very spiritual. He's super spiritual like I am. And that's how I work through things on a spiritual level. Like I'm very woo-woo, like this this sign happened. And I need someone who, un- when I talk that type of talk, I need someone who understands that and gives it back to me and doesn't look at me like, oh, okay, so what do you mean by that? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I needed that and I found that in him and it's helped me so much, but yeah, you have to have all these things. So like I have the sober community on Instagram. I've got really close friends that I made through the sober Instagram community. I've got my therapist. I've got, I've got my, my fitness coach, which helps with my sobriety. I mean, you've got to have a team. Like it takes a team. It really does. 
community is really important because and it doesn't have to just be sober people. I think it's a right. We're just like, okay, we just have to surround ourselves right. with sober people. No, like my biggest cheerleaders in the beginning were normal people. Mm-hmm. Just checking in, making sure mm-hmm. I was good, like seeing if I needed anything. Like, and that was huge. Like in the beginning, like I knew one sober person. So there was no one else. Like I only had normal people. So I think that, but you need to be able to create that community or find Mm -hmm. it somewhere. You can't just like sit there and be lonely and think like, oh, what was me? There's so much growing you have to do and healing you have to do when you become sober. Mm -hmm. And that's even if you're in like a situation where alcohol isn't serving you, right? Why isn't it serving you though? There's a reason. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing it? If you're you know, a lot of people talk about like, I'm not a mom, but like a lot of people talk about, you know, mom culture and how, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, the kids go to bed and then I drink. Yep. Well, like, are you justifying like you earn that glass of wine because your kids are in bed and what's going on with that? And I've seen a lot of that. And some of those women try to talk about how there's no, there doesn't, oh, well, there doesn't have to be a rock bottom. You could just decide to change. I don't personally believe that because a rock bottom can be literally anything Mm -hmm. it can be you drank and had sex with your husband i'm just using Mm -hmm. that as an example right and now you're you don't want to do anything like that again so you have to get sober dude you did something you shouldn't have fucking done like that's a rock bottom so anything can be considered a rock bottom and i don't i don't necessarily love that term Right. You know, because it's, it just puts people in a box and I don't, I I, like, I'm very outside the box. So I don't Mm -hmm. like thinking about it like that, but it's some situation happened, AKA rock bottom. And that's why you're here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just working on that, like really diving into that is I think what really helped me because you're able to dive into something that's literally so painful and you don't really need a lot of people think they need the person who hurt them right like I have all of this trauma and all of these situations and like I have both my parents but I knew that okay well if I can't accept my parents for who they are like I can't have them in my life and that's a choice I have to make and I you know one of them I accepted one of them was more difficult so mm-hmm. it's it's just you got to figure that out and and then that relationship with that parent just became incredibly close and i'm glad i had that so it's it's like a different situation but you going to the person who did that to you is not always the best thing you're not going to get what you want you won't ever get what you want Mm -hmm. and you know my therapist said like a couple weeks ago she was like you know maybe you know you could just like sit down and like just talk to yourself like you're an adult so like talk to your child self i think like I think inner child work is like it sounds crazy, but I've done it. I know where you're going with this. It sounds crazy, but it works. And she's like, "Well, you're an adult, so you can tell your kids yep. like it's okay, like you're okay." And like at first, like I laughed. She she was laughing. She's like, "I know it sounds freaking insane." It and does. So, but it's, oh but it's like the it's like the same. It's you have to you have to like it's like I have issues sleeping. So before I go to bed, I literally have to tell myself that I can fall asleep. Like it's ridiculous, Mm -hmm. but I have to do it or I don't go to like, I can't fall asleep. So it's, it's just conditioning yourself to really accepting all of yourself. Like I accepted in early sobriety, I accepted both good and bad. And I knew the bad things about me could be good if I use them correctly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say like when you're on a healing journey, like 
what people don't tell you about is how you have to consistently keep that situation healed because you're going to want to go back and do what you did before, but you have to continue going. And when you see those things, like that's when I isolate myself, right? Because that's how I do my thing. So I will just be like, okay, I need space. And I'll like tell my husband, like I need space. And then I get the space I need. So it's, and that needs to be, that is communication because in the beginning when I did that, my husband was like, why are you leaving? Like, where are you going? Yeah. What did I do like, wrong? Bro, yeah. I need my face. Like, yeah. yes. Like, what did I do? Do we have a fight? Did I say something wrong? Yeah. Like, what is going on? And I'm like, no, like, we're good. And that happened like for so long. And now I'm like, hey, I'm going to go into our room. I need to be alone. And I'm like, oh, yeah, just let me know when you're done. Like, and it's easy, you know? So it's, it's like over time, you'll find yourself one thing in your routine will stop. And then maybe a second thing will stop. And then you'll be like, fuck, what's going on? Okay. Why why am I what why do I feel a mess? And then you have to look at yourself and you have to go, okay. Um, because I stopped doing this and this. And this and this really helped me. And this and this was key to my sobriety. So now I need to go back and make sure I'm doing this and this. Like I have the same routine every single morning. And when it's messed up, I'm all messed up. Like if I wake up late and can't do what I got to do and go to work, I'm irritable all day long. Mm -hmm. Like those things and those escalate to different behaviors. So, you know, you have to make sure that it's a sobriety is a constant. You're constantly working on your sobriety. There's constantly something that needs to be worked on. And it's like a lifelong thing. You can't Mm -hmm. just be like, oh, okay, you know, this is okay. And I think that's why I use sobriety and not recovery most times because like this is my sober journey and this will be my journey until I'm no longer on earth. Like Mm -hmm. I know I can't ever drink again. So I don't think I'm recovered. Like there's not a day that I can't go and have a Cosmo and I'll be fine. Right. Like I can't, I would want another Cosmo. Mm -hmm. Like I would Mm -hmm. not be able to have one. So it's being able to accept those things about yourself. Mm -hmm. I think make it easier. And you always emotionally relapse before you physically relapse. Your mm-hmm. mind will be thinking about it. And if your mind's going there, literally you need you need to talk to somebody. You need mm-hmm. to get you need to figure out what's going on because that will lead to down a different path. Although I do feel like failure leads to success. If we can maybe not have that failure and start all over again. And if you have to look at the beginning and go, okay, maybe I did something and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So what can I do now? But I urge everyone to have a therapist like that is that is literally I don't think I'll ever stop going to therapy. Mm -hmm. And if my therapist retires, I'm going to cry because I know I I mean, she's young, so I'm good. But yeah, so I'm like she's around like a little bit older than me, I think. So I'm good. So we're good. (laughs) But (laughs) but I know like I'm like that is just like those sessions just crown me. And the way those sessions have moved too, like in the beginning, I would literally, my phone would be off all day. I would cry. <laughs> like all of this crazy stuff would happen. And now I have a session and sometimes I'm just like, oh, fuck, she's right. And then mm-hmm. I move on with my day. I can mm-hmm. function like a normal human being. And so I think that a lot of sobriety is healing. A lot of recovery is healing. And, you know, that's like your main thing. That is my main purpose in life is like, how can I continuously heal and grow? How can mm-hmm. I continuously do better? And I, I just think that for me, that's the journey that I'm on. I don't think I'll ever be off of it. Although these bad things happen to me and I speak out so that people don't make those same mistakes I did. I would never, ever want somebody to have to have a breathalyzer in their car until they're 51. Like, that's absurd. Like, that's crazy. And I have to do that. So that sucks. So it's like, 
you know, don't do those things. And it's, there's so much more available now. Like I was in this place where I was alone and didn't know what to do and felt like I couldn't talk to anybody. And like, now there's a million people I could talk to. Yeah. So I just urge anybody to just reach out to anybody, anybody in that community Mm -hmm. that you want to connect with. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Remember, I am just a woman on a mission to normalize sobriety and living a sober lifestyle. I am not a licensed therapist or a doctor. Please, if alcohol is causing serious physical or mental health issues, seek professional help. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to hit follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, leaving a five-star review will help this podcast reach more people like you in the sober community. It's an easy way to spread the word in normalizing a sober lifestyle. You should never feel alone in sobriety, so feel free to reach out to me via email or through my Instagram account at thisisstephsober. Links to both are listed in the show notes.